0: wonderful to see you tonight all of you that are joining us an important reminder the deadline for the 2020 acela science fair is coming up next tuesday april 28th at midnight don't wait till midnight okay get ahead there i was i was going to enter a pretty neat experiment but i ran out of time so don't don't wait until your very last minute okay All right, let's get it over to Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight.
1: Have you ever felt like talking to the mirror? Or how about talking to your plant? Well, I'm going to show you some neat technology that will make it so not only can you talk to them, but they can talk back. Oh, here we go. Some researchers at Carnegie Mellon University had developed a new kind of smart speaker that they call a digital ventriloquist. Remember, this is someone who uh, is talking, but you can't tell they're talking, you know? So you put this smart speaker in your house, and it points at whatever uh, it wants to have talk, and instead of the sound coming from the speaker, the sound comes from over there. So, you know, your little plant in the corner, water me, water me, you know. uh, Maybe your uh, door starts talking, you forgot to close the door, and things like that, you know. You can imagine a smart house. Uh, But it's amazing because it sounds like it's coming from over there. Let's take a closer look at how they did it. If you look at this picture, you can see that they have a robot arm that can move with some servos and it moves that speaker array or they're actually transducers up there on the top and then they have a camera that's looking around that identifies objects with computer vision decides what it's going to point at and it points that array of transducers at the target that it's going to make speak or make sound from and then uh, the really neat part happens it, those transducers are putting out ultrasound which means it's a higher frequency than we can hear remember we can only hear up to about I think it's 20 kilohertz right 20,000 20, times a second but these are putting out 40 kilohertz which is way up there so you don't hear anything and they're shooting out this uh, high frequency really targeted beam right at the thing that's gonna talk and then they use pulse width modulation to encode the audio at a slower frequency that you're going to hear. And when that audio, that uh, encoded audio, hits the object, then the interference of it bouncing off makes it so it sounds like that object is talking. But the really amazing part about it is that it's not just from one position in the room, but no matter where you stand in the room, it sounds like that one spot That one plant is what's talking. This is different than say your stereo sound uh, that you can have with headphones or maybe you have really fancy speakers in your uh, TV room or something. But that actually only works perfectly for the person right in the middle, right in the right spot. But this system actually works no matter where you are. So it's, it's pretty neat and different. Let's take a closer look at what pulse width modulation is. Because that's a mouthful, isn't it? You'll notice here at the top is the audio signal. And see how it's going up and down? Well, that's to signify the pressure of air going back and forth. Remember, sound is just a vibration. So that slow line is our uh, signal. And then the red line is something else called amplitude modulation. That's where we make the waves bigger or smaller to encode the signal. And then we have frequency modulation, which is the same as pulse width modulation. And see how the little waves get bigger and smaller down there? Well, that encoding of the the waves getting bigger and smaller is what I'm talking about. And it's still too fast for us to even be able to hear it all. But that interference, when it hits the object, creates the actual sound that we can hear. It's pretty amazing, because it's quiet until it hits that target. Now there are a few little uh, tricky things. They found when they started experimenting with this that there are certain frequencies, certain audio frequencies, that don't quite come through as well. So in their experiments, they made objects talk. They gave it a guy's voice because, well, us guys have the frequency that doesn't get lost as much. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, they're, they're still working on some things like that. And they tweaked the equalization. But they did a whole bunch of experiments where They had people come in, and they pointed the speaker at different things and made different things talk. I hope they told them what was happening, because that would be really creepy, wouldn't it? (laughs) Uh, But 92% of the time, people could actually tell which thing in the room was talking. That's a really good percentage. And then 100% of the time, the people could understand what the thing was saying. So that's actually pretty good results, isn't it? Now it takes kind of a while sometimes for that arm to move to the right target and then shoot the sound beam. So they're working on a new version that's more like what you might see in your home. And what they're doing is putting those transducers everywhere around the speaker. So then it can target any direction. And this will make it so it can really quickly make different things speak around the room. So you know maybe this is the next the next generation of things like our Alexa speakers and things like that. Uh, So uh, if it is, then get ready to talk to everything, (laughs) because everything is going to talk to you. (laughs) That's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you.
0: Okay, and now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias.
2: Right. Well, tonight we're going to start by asking ourselves, what kind of a person am I? Are we the kind of person that when something goes wrong or we run into a problem or a difficulty with something we're using, does it just make our day frustrated from then on, which is like, pfft? Or do we see the problem, and does it spark a moment of opportunity where we see a problem, which means there's an opportunity, and we're like, ah, oh, this thing always, ah, oh. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not that, more prestigious than that, Okay, We're going to talk about somebody who had moments like that, uh, more prestigious as well. Um, And we're talking about a gentleman named Dr. Amar. Now, just real quick, so here's Dr. Amar. And he graduated from MIT. And the faculty loved him so much, they told him, hey, you should come teach here. And he said, no, I just want to research at MIT. I don't want to teach. And then the next week, he was congratulated. And he said, why? And they said, you're on the faculty list. <laughs> so, and he said that he was amazed how much he loved teaching. And he taught at MIT as a professor for quite a while. Well, he goes on. He creates his own company. He becomes extremely successful. And he's on a flight. And the flight is from Zurich back to Boston. And he's very excited. This is in 1978. And they have headphones provided by the plane. So they're top quality um, headphones, and it's the first time he's ever used headphones that, that they've had them on the plane. So he's going to put these headphones on, he can listen to music um, that they provide. He puts them on, and he's so disappointed. He's very frustrated, because he can hear the music sort of, but from the s- it's drowned out by the sound of the jet engines, the low rumble of planes, if you've ridden on an airplane, the the air conditioning makes a hum, there's of course all the ambient noise of people, and he couldn't hear the music and he was very disappointed. This was not, the, the didn't live up to the excitement he had. Well, he all of a sudden thinks, I could do so much better on this. I, there's a way we could make this better, and he starts writing ideas down, and it's about an eight-hour flight, and by the time he gets to Boston, he's written all kinds of math and equations. Remember, he's an MIT professor, and he goes to his company. and says, "We're going to make this. We're going to make headphones that can get rid of all that other sound." And you know, if you think about that, okay, how are you going to do that? You know, some of you are probably like, "Well, we need more sound. You know, so forget about headphones. Let's get some speaker sandwiches, okay, and put them on. <laughs> Just walk around like we're in Star Trek. Good evening, okay?" No, um, we 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 already. If you turn those headphones up, you're still going to get all that other sound and destroy your ears so that's not the solution and of course there is one side of this and that's you get those earmuff type things and you put it on and to help stop some of that other sound from coming in you know granted you do look like a DJ and you feel like Princess Leia um, <laughs> help me Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> but no those are really cool uh, the headphones not the buttons <clears throat> but that's, that's one step that is one step is having something that's blocking that sound physically with this foam and other equipment that's on there, or pieces of the system that you're wearing. But he takes this into the math realm, and we're not going to go there. (laughs) At least least I can't tell you it. But they work for almost 10 years on this, and spend millions... Oh, I forgot to mention something. His his name is Dr. Amar Bose. (laughs) Uh, From the Bose company. Some of you guys are like, oh, him. Some of you are like, Bose is a person? <laughs> but the, he was already part of, well, the founder of this amazing speaker company called Bose. And they did speakers. And he had already done amazing things in the world of sound with speakers. But headphones was a whole new frontier they had not gone into. And a lot of his team was like, okay, we're going to do headphones. And they started working. And his idea was let's get rid of the sound we don't want, here it comes, with sound. Now, that sounds backwards because if you have this sound and then you have this sound, you put them together, if one person's loud in the room, two people is way louder, and it, it builds up. It just gets more and more loud. So how's that going to work? Well, his headphones would listen with a built-in microphone, and it would listen and calculate the wave of the sound that was coming in and then create the exact opposite of that sound. Now, to understand that, we need to remember that sound is the vibration, like what some of what John talked about. It's it's the air being vibrated and it's a wave. And so every sound that we hear is a wave. And you know, they have the valleys or the peaks, he didn't call them that much more advanced things in their notes. But if you think about, okay, we've got these waves, it has the valleys and the peaks. Okay? Well, if we did another wave that was exactly the opposite, so when this wave that's coming into our ear goes down this generated one goes up the same amount as this one went down. And then it does the opposite. And it's like a cool dance going on. Uh, But it starts being, it it goes into something that's really, you know, it's amazing to think about. It's canceling the sound out. If you imagine if you were in a circus tent, you're by one of those big walls, and the wind is hitting against the wall, and the wall's going like this. If your job's to hold that still, every time the wind pushes it this way, you've got to push that way. And you want to push it the equal amount the wind's pushing so that you don't push it out. And then when the wind pulls it that way, you got to pull this way. So you push and pull and keep it right here. That's kind of what it's doing is it's analyzing what the wave of sound is doing and then doing the opposite. And this was a revolutionary idea, and it took years. Actually, one of, uh, he's now the CEO of Bose, but he has a story where he was not the CEO, and he said... One day he came up and he said, you realize how much we've spent on this project? And Dr. Morris said, how much have we spent? And he said, well, 50 million. And Dr. Bose said, wow, gosh, if we were a public company, I'd be fired, huh? <laughs> it's like, and then they kept working. <clears throat> but this was first used by pilots. Pilots loved this because now all that sound is getting canceled out through this noise canceling. And they can communicate with other planes, with the tower, and it's used eventually by the military, and then finally down to consumers. And it's a magical thing to be able to, I mean, it's, it's really a magical thing that's going on. And now you, you have even little earbuds you can put in, and they have noise cancellation. You just you put them in, then you turn it on, and it's like, <laughs> whoa, and everybody is like. Greg, you feeling OK? <laughs> but it doesn't matter, because you can't hear him. Uh, <clears throat> but pretty amazing stuff, all from a problem, an annoyance, and then an idea, seeing opportunity. And when he described being um, recruited by MIT, uh, he, he talked about it, that he approached it this way. He says, whatever job you're given, ask yourself, how can I do that job better than it has ever been done before? And that is truly what he did. And When they saw huge successes from this, he actually turned around and gave MIT the majority of the stock of Bose, which is still in. That's how how it's set up today, which is pretty amazing. So pretty cool stuff. And that's how we went from bad sound to awesome sound. Thank you.
0: All right. And now introducing Roger Billings. I'm
3: going. You brought your flowers, didn't you? <laughs> That's, what, your people are great. They are. <laughs> I mean, yeah,
4: my people are
3: good. You know those uh, Dr. Bose noise-canceling headphones? Can you imagine? You hear all the sound out there, and then you put them on, and all of a sudden, it just goes completely quiet. The birds stop chirping. What if it makes the flowers not come up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it would be a real neat thing. I, I have some, by the way. They're even Bose, and I love them. You put them on, and all of us. Isn't that amazing! Could you hear that? <laughs> All of a sudden, everything is really quiet. What do you think about those?
4: I think they're really good.
3: What? <laughs> what? It's kind of a, an amazing technology. Wow. Dr. Bose is a, a hero of mine. He has been for a long time, and early in his career, uh, he did some amazing things with sound that kind of got him started out in his. In his reputation. Everybody knows what a, a speaker is. Speakers, what you hook up to a stereo, and usually they're inside a box, but if you get them out, usually round, sometimes they're oblong. But there is a, a voice coil, sound coil, that hooks up to the amplifier, and as a pulse of electricity comes into that coil, it makes the paper on the speaker go back and forth. And they're different kinds. Usually what they do is they have the coil around the part that moves, and then they have a big magnet behind it. So when the coil gets magnetized by having electricity flow through it, it pulls it back towards the magnet. And as it goes back and forth, it's got a cone of paper that makes a sound wave. And That's kind of how speakers work. Well, making speakers sound really good has been a real challenge. if you buy a really inexpensive speaker and play music through it, it sounds kind of tinny and you know. But what you'd like is a really expensive speaker that sounds like the orchestra is right there. So Bose did something that I thought was really clever. Do you know what an anechoic chamber is? I don't. OK. You teach me? We'll teach them. Uh, aliens don't know about enoquid. I mean.
4: Seems like we should know about chambers,
3: Okay. Huh? <laughs> An anechoid chamber is a room that has uh, sound-absorbing insulation all the way around it. So if you go in there, it just sounds really, really quiet, because any sound just gets absorbed in all the walls. And so the neat thing about it, inside these chambers, you don't have any interference of sound from the outside, so you can really study things. So Dr. Bose took a little cheap speaker into the special sound-absorbing chamber, the anechoid chamber, and hooked it up and played a tone. And then he put a microphone to see if the tone that he was playing on the speaker was the same tone the speaker was putting out. And then gradually, he changed the pitch of the tone. So it started out low, and went up high. And as he changed the pitch, he measured the sound the speaker was putting out with a microphone and plotted out on a graph, and he found that at different frequencies the sound got louder and at other fre- frequencies it got softer. And that has to do with the resonant frequency of the speaker. In other words, anything that's mechanical, if it vibrates in a sound, it vibrates better at certain tones because of the weight and the mass and things about it. And if you buy a cheap speaker, that's what makes it sound cheap. And tinny is the fact that it has those weird distortions in the sound caused by different frequency resonance. So what he did is he took a bunch of speakers, one at a time, put them in the chamber and did a profile on the curve, then did another one. And the profiles were all a little bit different because they're slightly different weights and thicknesses of material, et cetera. And he got a whole bunch of those tests in the computer. And then he went through and picked out a set of speakers, four to be exact, little cheap speakers that just happened to have the resonance at different places so that all together they would add up to be very perfect. He put them all in one cabinet, hooked them up and played them together, and these really cheap speakers sounded wonderful. And I have a pair of those to this day that I bought a long, long time ago. They're called Bose 401 Speakers, and they are really, really, really amazing. Little cheap speakers that sound incredible because he just put the right ones together. I think it's pretty neat. Okay, she's not impressed. I am Let's impressed. Move on. I,
4: I'm impressed with how much you know about Did you, it. <laughs> do you know
3: about uh, these things that John was talking about, where you have the sound waves, the high frequency you send them, and when they hit the object, they come back as sounds that you can hear, and I think that's pretty neat. Well, going back to MIT for a minute, there were a group of students there that came up with an idea that has now just overnight spawned a company. And this company has a film, and I'm gonna show you this piece of film. It turns out that this is not the kind of film they have, but it's like it. This is even neater, I'm gonna talk about it later. But just imagine, a thin piece of plastic looking film. And what the students did is they impregnated Nanoparticles in the plastic. Nanoparticles mean billionth of an inch particles.
4: How do you do that?
3: Well, you just go. No, seriously,
4: how do you impregnate it into the plastic?
3: Well, there'd be a lot of ways to impregnate it, and I'm not going to reveal their secrets because I don't know them.
4: But I know you know. I know you know some me, part of it. But
3: just think, if I were to take a salt shaker. Uh huh. And sprinkle salt on here. I'd have little particles of salt. And then if I got an iron and ironed them in, I would impregnate salt particles in here. Well, salt particles are big compared to nanoparticles. Nanoparticles are so small you can't even hardly see them. But they developed a process to impregnate them very smooth and evenly in this sheet of plastic. Mm -hmm. And you looked at it and you couldn't see them. You say, why do we do that? (laughs) but then they did something incredibly amazing with these they put them up on a window in front of a store and they could look through and they could see out or you could look in no big deal but then they took a projector a projector like you hook up to a computer and it projects an image and when they projected it on the clear plastic, the light hit the nanoparticles and reflected back. And so all of a sudden, the great big window was a giant computer display. And they could play movies on it and all sorts of things. That's neat. Yeah. In fact, I was so impressed with it that I'm actually looking about incorporating their technology in the New classrooms mm-hmm. coming this fall.
4: I'm excited Isn't that about cool? those, yes.
3: But it's a lot like the sound thing. John's thing, they're using high-frequency ultrasound to then make audible sound from a point, and that's exactly what these do. You transmit light onto them, and the particles reflect the light back, and so you see the images. And it's really kind of neat, because it's just like this clear sheet of grass, and all of a sudden there's a picture playing right in the glass. And they're really inexpensive. Simple idea, and now it's a whole company. Just think, um, how many ideas like Dr. Bose, like the students that Johnny described, and even the MIT students, how many came because guys did science fair projects and learned how to make neat things happen? And I hope a lot of you are gonna take Joseph's admonition and advice tonight (laughs) and get your science fair project going. I've been watching some of the projects that are already coming in. There's some pretty neat ones. We're going to have a really fun science fair this year. In fact, I think science fair is so important. I'm canceling all of the school classes. (laughs) So you can really spend a lot of time working on your science fair projects. And we have some
4: new um, people who are just... On the cellist now. and these are
3: aliens or? Or just. I hope these so. Aren't your people. I hope they're my
4: people. Oh, they're your people. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. they want to know how to get involved in the science fair because they this is coming fast and they weren't aware of it. All apartment. right, well,
3: can we take just a minute while uh, uh, Page explains how to get involved?
4: Uh huh. So, what we want to do is we want to have Joshua come up and oh. tell us exactly how to do it, how to submit it, and how they can be involved <laughs> in Ladies it. and
3: gentlemen, this technique is called Buck. Passing.
4: <laughs> I'm Mr. Passing Joshua,
3: <laughs> would you please come and do a science fair commercial? He probably asked you to do this.
4: No, he? he's, no, he's, I think I'm going to talk to you after this. <laughs> okay,
3: ladies and gentlemen. But
4: they Joshua. Yeah.
0: The
2: Acellus Science Fair is an exciting opportunity. Uh, and to learn about it, the first thing you need to do is go to acellus.com, scroll down on the page, and you'll see a link to information about the science fair. When you click on it, there's some great information about how to plan your project and you need to apply the scientific method Uh, and it's designed so that you can do it at home. And when you complete your project, you're going to submit your entry as a video. So you need to create a video of your project and you presenting the findings and what you found as a result of testing your hypothesis. And then once you upload that video, that will be entered in the contest uh, the deadline, as Joseph mentioned, is April 28th, so it's right around the corner, but there's still time to get in and get your project finished. So it's a great opportunity.
1: Acellus.com. Thank you.
3: Nice commercial. Thank you, Joshua. Uh, you did really good. Two, flat. Yeah. What should we get? Uh, four. How <laughs> good? A good presentation. <laughs> well, the Science Fair uh, means an awful lot to me because so much of my career started with a science fair project. And as I'm here with my hydrogen water bottle tonight, I'm reminded that my high school science fair project was running an engine on hydrogen. And I, I want to talk about that for just a minute tonight. Uh, hydrogen is a gas. I used to, I had a t-shirt that I once made and gave to all my friends. And it says, hydrogen, it's a gas. <laughs> and it is, it's a, it's a gas. It's a gas that is the lightest element known to man. Some of you have seen those helium balloons you can get at the grocery store, put them on a string and they float up. Well, you can fill balloons with hydrogen and they pull twice as hard because they're twice as light and they want to float on top of air. Hydrogen balloons are actually the way that I first became interested in hydrogen. And I want to talk a little bit about that. This is a hydrogen water bottle and inside it, we have some burnt hydrogen ash, also known as water. Because when you burn hydrogen, it turns into water. H2, which is hydrogen two hydrogen atoms combined with an oxygen molecule and form H2O. So there it is, burnt hydrogen. When I turn on my little hydrogen bottle, it breaks the water apart with electricity. And hydrogen bubbles come out and oxygen bubbles come out. And that's, that's how hydrogen's made. Well, once hydrogen's made, it's ready to be ignited and burned again to make it into water. And you can use the same hydrogen over and over and over and over and over again, turning it into hydrogen, turning it back into water, hydrogen, water, and so forth. So when I was uh, in middle school, my science teacher did an experiment where he turned some water into hydrogen and he filled a balloon. And the balloon would float on a string he had. And he lit a little fire to the string. And the fire climbed up the string while the balloon floated up to the ceiling of our our classroom. And when the fire got up to the balloon, it ignited the hydrogen. And there was an explosion. Boom. And I, I was watching it. And it was like I could see this flame all of a sudden and hear the boom. And then the teacher said, that noise you heard was me making water. The flame was turning hydrogen into water, and I thought, that's so neat. If you can burn hydrogen and it'll pop, it'll explode, and, and you make water, then you could put it in a car. And when you drove the car, there'd be no pollution. The only thing coming out of the tow pipe would be water. And at that time, there's no way I could have known that just a few years later, I would be on national television with a little cup on the tailpipe of my hydrogen car collecting the water and drinking it on national television. By the way, that's what made me look like this, was drinking that <laughs> <laughs> It worked. You look yeah,
4: good. it
3: really did work. So hydrogen is, is really a neat thing, but I had to figure out how to make the engine run on hydrogen, and that turned out to be a lot of adventure with a lot of, difficult, unsuccessful steps, and finally, with some successful ones, and a lot of interesting things happen. Now, I want to show you a photograph of the very, very first hydrogen engine. This was an engine that I earned by mowing the neighbor's lawn, took it off of the lawnmower, and uh, I'd like to show it to you now. There it is, isn't that amazing? <laughs> that tube sticking out the front The green tube that has the yellow tubing hanging down, I made that. I made that in the school shop. And it's actually a a piece of copper, which I welded the little tubing in and then painted (sighs) it. But that is my hydrogen carburetor. And that is the thing that kind of made it run. And boy, I could tell you a lot of good stories. I could tell you a lot of not so good stories. You can see on the right. Of the engine there's a place where you hook in a rope and you wind it around and then you pull the rope to get it started. Well as I was trying to get this engine to run on hydrogen, I needed to mix the air and the hydrogen together in just the right proportion so it would burn. That's what a carburetor does. It mixes fuel and air just in the right, if you get too much fuel it won't burn, if you get too much air it won't burn. So I had to have just the right amount and A gasoline carburetor is for a liquid fuel, so it wouldn't work on hydrogen, so I had to make a gaseous carburetor, which the one you saw in the photo is. But before I made that one, I made a glass carburetor. And I thought it was pretty ingenious. It was a great big glass flask that I got by working for the glass blower at the university, and I brought this home, put a stopper in the top and some tubes, a little bit of water so I could bubble the water and i get exactly the mixture of hydrogen and air to make the engine work according to my youth calculations. And I actually think I did the calculation right, but anyway, after I got that uh, glassware all ready to go, I hooked a tube from it up over to the engine and then I had to pull the rope so I needed someone else to run the little valve to keep the pressure just right in the tank. And I figured that's why I have a wonderful little brother. <laughs> and my little brother was a good sport, and I said, okay, all you have to do is you see this plastic bag? You have to keep it half inflated with hydrogen. If it got too full, it'd make too much pressure, and it wouldn't have the right mixture again. If it got empty, it wouldn't have enough hydrogen, and have the wrong pressure. But if you kept it half full, that meant the hydrogen inside the plastic bread bag would be exactly atmospheric pressure. See, I figured this all out with science. And so he's sitting here with the hydrogen welding tank opening and closing the valve to keep that half full. And I'm over wrapping the rope around the engine and getting ready to pull. And I was ready to go, and I thought, this is history in the making. <laughs> the world's first hydrogen engine. And then I stopped to reflect for a minute and I thought, I don't think anything could go wrong, but if it did, I wonder what would happen to that big glass flask. So I stopped and went into our garage. Uh, My my research laboratory was the back porch. And I went back in the garage and we had this big old heavy canvas jacket. It actually was my dad's. I thought that would be good. I brought it and wrapped it around the flask and zipped it up and then I got a rope and I tied it all up so that it would stay on there and that way nothing could go wrong. <laughs> Little brother inflates the bread bag again, half full of hydrogen. I wrapped the rope. One, two, three. Actually, I guess I didn't say one, two, three. Actually, I said... Five, four, three, <laughs> two, one. And I pulled it, and it started spinning, and then it stopped, and then the fire came out through the tube, went back in the glass, and I heard one of the biggest bangs I'd ever heard, and my little brother's right there running that. It destroyed the coat. And somehow, even though pieces of glass went a lot of places, nobody got hurt. That was and I was very grateful for that, and I realized... This is not a good, safe carburetor. Unfortunately, my mother figured that out, too. She heard the bang. She came running outside. What happened? I said, well, we didn't quite have the right carburetor. And my science fair project was over for the rest of that year, which, looking back, was really a setback for science.
4: (laughs) But a wise mother. But a
3: year later... When I was all out of trouble, we tried it again. And can we show the picture again? This is the little engine with the carburetor. And I remember so well the first day that I really got it to run. And the way that I got it to run finally is I hooked it up to a great big electric motor that I then plugged into the wall and it made it just go all by the electricity. Then I opened the hydrogen And it started popping and it kept turning because it had that, the electric motor was as big as the gasoline motor which was converted to hydrogen. And pop, 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 bang, kept going, kept going, kept going, I kept running it, why why is it backfiring? And eventually it quit popping, it quit backfiring and started running very, very smooth. And then I unplugged the electric motor and it kept running, just on hydrogen. And I just thought I had conquered the world. <laughs> uh, it's running on hydrogen. I turned the gas up and go faster and slower, and, and it was amazing. Then I went over and smelled the exhaust. Kind of smelled a little bit like a, um, a laundromat or something. You know, it's kind of a steamy smell. And it was. It was steam. Pure, pure steam coming out of that engine. And I had built it, and I was so excited and so proud of myself. What I later learned is the reason that it backfired at first was that I had a really old engine, and it mowed a lot of lawns, and when you run an engine on gasoline, some of the gasoline doesn't burn, and so it leaves carbon deposits inside the cylinder, and the carbon was getting hot and igniting the hydrogen before the intake valve closed, and that's why it wasn't working. When you run an engine on hydrogen, it burns all of the carbon out of the engine, makes it clean. Once it burned out all of the carbon, then it was easy to start. i put a rope on and pull it, which I did for the science fair, and it worked really well. So an engine running on hydrogen, if a lawnmower engine will run on hydrogen, then a full-size car will run on hydrogen too. Only makes sense, right? If little works, big works better. So, my next project was to convert the first automobile to run on hydrogen. My father happened to own a Model A Ford. And with some persuasion, I convinced him to let me experiment on his car. Now, you've got to understand what I mean by some persuasion. Originally, I says, Dad, I need to talk to you about science. I've invented a hydrogen engine, and I want to now make a hydrogen car. And you know, our family just bought that brand new Chevy. (laughs) And it would be the perfect, no. (laughs) What about your old broken down jalopy? And he said, yes. So I'd like to show you a photograph of the very, very first hydrogen car. There it is. And that handsome looking guy Can you see him?
4: I can see him. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty handsome.
3: Yep. So that was the car, and this was uh, the first week that we converted it to run on hydrogen. Now, we put the hydrogen tank in the back, ran a tube up to the front, and yes, little brother sent in the back, and when I want to go faster, I go like this, and he'd turn it up, When I want to slow down, I go like this, and he'd turn it down. It It was a team effort. And we drove around town, and it, every once in a while would pop a little bit, but it was kind of thing. And you can see, if you look through the window of the car, you can see little brother sitting back there.
4: <laughs> uh, he turned
3: out to be a really great little brother. In fact, he's about this much taller than I am now, <laughs> which I think is pretty disrespectful. But anyway. <laughs> so a car ran on hydrogen, and that... Uh, won the science fair that year and went to the international science fair and and at the international science fair won a gold and silver medal which gave me a scholarship to the university of my choice. So these science fairs can be very, very profitable. But later, uh, in fact in 1991, I wanted to make a car that would be more efficient and that would be able to go farther on one tank of hydrogen. And to do that, instead of using an old gasoline engine, we need to use a fuel cell. And I just happened to bring a fuel cell in case some of you don't remember what they look like. This is a cell that has individual plates in it. And on each of these plates, you put the fuel in and air in, and it reacts and makes water. And the energy, instead of coming off with a spinning crankshaft, comes off as electricity. So you can hook this up to an electric motor and run your car that way. And the nice thing about it is the fuel cell will make the same car go three times as far on the same tank of gas, which is a big improvement. Now this is where this material I brought comes from. I told you this isn't really the MIT stuff. This is actually the membrane that is used inside this fuel cell. And this is kind of a, of a mass, magic plastic material, because if you put a piece of metal conductor on both sides of this and then run hydrogen through it, it gives you off electricity like a battery. And the hydrogen is turned into water with no moving parts. There's nothing turning. There's nothing wearing out. There's no spark plugs. There's no flame. This is really, really a neat way to do hydrogen cars. And uh, I was very pleased to be able to build a car that was now very economical to operate. In fact, because of the efficiency, you could actually run it on hydrogen at a cost that was more economical than running on gasoline and that's where things started to get excited now i uh, like to show you some of the other vehicles that uh, we have converted to hydrogen what have you got for me guys let's see what this one is hmm. that is the world's first hydrogen bus and this is a little bus that was uh, converted to hydrogen it was a bus built by winnebago uh winnebago was a company that was run by a very good friend of mine in fact he became my friend because of hydrogen but this bus was involved in um, the regular city transit system and when we put the hydrogen bus into service uh, the the city mayor said well we'll run it but we're going to run the regular bus with it so that if people don't want to ride in the hydrogen bus they wouldn't have to Remember that uh, years ago, there was a big airship named the Hindenburg. Most people have heard about it, but it looked like a big hot dog, except it was the length of three football fields. Can you imagine that? 300 yards. It's a really, really long, big, giant balloon. And the reason it was so big is so it could lift a lot of people and they could cross the ocean. Well, this Hindenburg was designed to be filled up with helium. Helium is light and would lift the Hindenburg off the ground, but helium won't burn. Hydrogen burns, hydrogen's a fuel, helium's an inert gas. When it came time to get the helium, nobody would sell the helium to the people that made the airship because it was a time when Germany, which was the country that made the airship, had been invading some of their neighbors. And so everybody was afraid of them. They wouldn't sell them any helium. So I said, not a problem. We'll just make some hydrogen out of water and put hydrogen in it. Well, that turned out not to be such a good idea. They filled the Hindenburg up with hydrogen, and it came flying across the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, they had a nice trip when they got to Lakehurst, New Jersey. They were just getting ready to, to tie up the ship, and they were still about 125 feet in the air, and something ignited the hydrogen. could have been static. It was a stormy day. could have been some lightning, but it caught on fire, and there were still all of these people up in this airship. You can imagine that you don't want to be up in the air in a fuel tank that is three times the length of a football field long, turning into a big ball of fire. And it was a a terrible disaster, and the ship came crashing down as the hydrogen burned, and unfortunately some people were hurt. But two-thirds of the people came out of that accident unscathed or, or alive, able to tell about it. And actually, the accident of the Hindenburg is one of the proofs of why so many of us now think that hydrogen is a very, very safe fuel. Uh, I have a lot of stories about hydrogen, but I wanna show you another vehicle. Let's take a look at this one. This is the hydrogen lawnmower. And in the background is the hydrogen home. And we actually converted our whole house to run on hydrogen. If you can see behind the guy that mowed the lawn (laughs) there is a a car there it's actually a Cadillac Seville and this was in the inaugural parade of uh, President Jimmy Carter in fact here it is going down through the inaugural parade and this is one of 23 cars and buses and vehicles that uh, I converted to hydrogen showing people how this technology worked now we're we're running quick out of time but I want to show you another picture and there it is. Whoop.
4: Oh, there you are. And <laughs> this, it's the hydrogen man right this there. This is the 3D picture. Wow. Yeah. Mm,
3: okay. Mm. I think this is a good
4: one. This is the guy. There I we go. All
3: right. Now look at this. This is an electric vehicle that had batteries in it and the car would go 50 miles and then you had to charge it, uh, you had to plug it in and charge it up for about four more hours. To see. I think they're calling me right now from Washington, aren't they?
4: They want to know why they don't have a hydrogen car in Washington right right now.
3: Well, let me go back to this little electric car. This needs to be quiet. I should turn this off tonight, (laughs) shouldn't I? I just wanted you to know (laughs) I I have a phone.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Can we do that again? If if you did that, you'd be
3: in a lot of trouble. I know. I was worried it was me. (laughs) But anyway, the thing that happened was this car would go 50 miles on a charge of electricity, and then it was all in <laughs> trouble again. Well, this particular one, we went ahead and converted it to hydrogen. And then it would go 300 miles. And it shows the advantage of hydrogen over just regular uh, battery cars. And anybody that has an electric car, like you know one of Elon Musk's cars, can put a fuel cell in it and really extend the range. And that's uh, kind of an ideal system. Well, that's all the hydrogen we have time for tonight. (laughs) So we won't go more into it. Because uh, Paget has something tonight she'd like to share with us. And I wanted to be sure and save plenty of time for her.
4: Actually, I have a blonde question. Yes. Are you taking blonde questions? I don't know what that means. It's it's one of my questions, no, actually.
3: Boy. Oh, one of your questions.
4: So years and years ago, somebody, I think his name was uh, Roger Billings, um, invented the ability to go to gigabit over copper speeds, and you had something that you had noise canceling um, technology, right?
3: I wouldn't know.
4: You do know, <laughs> did and I? And I, I heard about that, and as I was listening about Bose and John, I wondered how that worked in computer signaling, if it's. If it's tied to that at all, or
3: well, we're uh, we're running a little bit out of time tonight, but I will say that uh, a few years back, mm-hmm. I became very interested in hooking computers together so they could send data over a wire. Right, and people were already sending data over wires, but they were sending it real slow, and I thought that's not neat. They're sending mm-hmm. it at at 10 megabit and I wanted to send it at a 1,000 megabit. And I thought I could and a lot of people thought you can't go a gigabit, 1,000 megabit over just a copper cable. And I proved that you can. <laughs> yeah, and we came out with a product called Wideband Networking. And we sold these uh, all over the world for several years. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the, the problem of getting the data to go over a wire that fast is pretty hard because you do get a lot of interference and noise. And so we did something kind of like Dr. Bose, in that we made the two wires have a differential signal. So one would go positive right when the other one went negative, and that way we could cancel out the noise mm-hmm. and be able to hear our data on the other end. So it's interesting how these same kind of concepts can be used in a lot of different ways. Uh, Wideband networking is now part of Gold Key, which is now part of Cybersecurity Corporation, and a project that I continue to be pretty excited about. And we uh, are using the Wideband Concentrator, which is kind of the main technology we developed in Wideband, for a cellus. Anybody that is seeing me tonight and her, our image is coming over a wideband concentrator, which is one of the reasons why we're able to serve so many students. And we don't have to charge more, because we don't have to buy other equipment. By the way, the wideband concentrators are only used by Cellus because right now we only use them in our data centers. Uh, it's a technology that we think is pretty need And so far, we just build them for ourselves, which gives us a, a real advantage and helps us take care of the most amazing students on planet Earth.
4: And your students helped you with that.
3: That's right, that uh, Wideband Corporation was created by a, uh, a group of students and I, and I will say that the chief engineer is Dr. John. Yeah. Mr. Uh, Really Smart Guy.
4: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I like that title. (laughs) uh,
3: It it is amazing the projects that he and I have done together, and uh, we're still cooking up a lot more. Uh, Today we were talking about how we're going to uh, enhance the Acellus Data Center because it's bigger than we ever dreamed it could get. Uh, We have millions of students using Acellus. And it's, it's hard to be able to play the videos and everything fast enough so that they run smooth. And uh, when we first went to uh, all of these new students that are studying at home when the schools started shutting down, we had one of the schools call us. And they said they sent their kids home to work, and they're doing this at home. But when they played the videos, it's kind of jerky and they were afraid that our data center couldn't keep up. And it turned out that they had it set so all the students were watching the video from our server at their school, and their school didn't have enough bandwidth for all the kids at home. So we pointed them to our servers instead, and the problem problem went away. But we're now thinking that we're going to see growth in the in the next few years of, from 10 to 100 to 1,000 times more students uh, because it's starting to be used more and more around the world. And so we are starting a big project now to expand the data center so that we'll be able to handle that kind of growth and try to keep up with the needs. It would uh, it would break my heart if somebody couldn't do a cellus just because we can't keep up with the bandwidth. So we're going to keep working very hard on that. Uh, and it's neat to have these technologies that we do have to be able to leverage and do that.
4: So I was just thinking, it'd be really neat if I could have somebody help me.
3: <laughs> With your science fair project? Yeah.
4: maybe this should be my science fair project. If I took everything that you've done, what, when people say you can't, from the hydrogen car to the wideband networking, to some other things, and if we to, were to show that, and then if you didn't do it, what the impact on today's world would look like. It'd be really fascinating.
3: Well, You know, I, I guess we all have flaws.
4: I have a lot. Yeah, and
3: um, oh. it's good to mm. know what your flaws are and to work on them, and I try to mm-hmm. do that. But about that. One of my flaws is I really can't stand the words I can't.
4: <laughs>
3: and, and especially when they say you can't. It's like a... You mean can't as in can't? cannot do it. <laughs> I, I think those are words of, of challenging you to do it. But you know, um, there are a lot of things you can do. You mm-hmm. can take a walk. You know, you mm-hmm. can ride a bike. You can go to the store. There's a lot, Maybe not anymore. No, you know, no. you can not go to the store. <laughs> There's a lot of things you can do. And if you do them, then nobody pays any attention. But there are a few things that can't be done. And when you do one of those, everybody notices. And so I like doing the things that can be done. And there's a lot of things that I am not yet able to do, but I love doing things that people don't think can be done. And I I would encourage all of our students to look at life from that point of view. The prize isn't for doing what everybody can do. The prize is for doing what nobody else can do. And when Edison made that first light bulb, and he had a commercial bulb he could sell to light up New York and eventually the world, he changed the world by doing something that couldn't be done. And remember, he tried a thousand different designs for a light bulb that wouldn't burn out right away. It was easy to make one that be on for just a short time, but to make one that would last. and the secret, wasn't what kind of filament to use. You run the electricity through it and he tried filaments made of all of these different kinds of materials. And after he tried everything and nothing worked, scratching his head, he somehow came up with the idea, what if I put the filament inside a glass light bulb, inside of a glass and pulled out all the oxygen? Because the filament was burning. And if you take away all the oxygen, then it won't burn. And when he did that and he, he hooked it up to the electricity, it just glowed and glowed and glowed and glowed. And all of a sudden, he lit up the world. And just think how things are happening today. So something you can't do is an oppor- opportunity to do something that matters. And I love that and I encourage other people to do it. And there are certain techniques you can use because you know it's easy to find something you can't do, but it's hard to find something that nobody can do but that you can figure out how to do. You can't, you can't do things that you can't do. And so what I like to do is I like to look at these new technologies like the one John described, like Dr. Bose, like all of them, and when there is a new technology, then I like to figure out what to do with it. I didn't hear the story about the students at MIT that made the nanoparticle plastic that you can now project on, so you've got a very affordable screen, as it were, for a projector, but I'm guessing that they had the nanoparticles, and they were saying, wow, these are neat, these are different, what could we do with them? And so now when you go walking by the windows in a store, they're going to have all of these advertisements playing like a big giant television, and they're very, very affordable because of this technology. So the challenge is figuring out something that can't be done that you can. And the way that uh, you get to do that over and over and over in life is if you learn how to use a scientific method to take the new technologies that are coming out study their properties, their attributes, and then figure out what you can do with them to have the outcome that you you want to achieve. So I hope a lot of you are gonna be inspired to do the science fair this year. I've got my hydrogen bottles ready to ship and we're still uh, planning to have other prizes for the science fair this year. Uh, But the biggest prize is what you learn, the knowledge that you gain, the power that you obtain Mm -hmm. to be able to Bless this world. Okay? Okay. Well, that's all of the page we have time for tonight. (laughs) But I want to thank you all. Thank you, Dr. John, Toby, and and everyone else for joining us. And we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. One parting shot, I have had some students tell me they'd really like to get credit Mm -hmm. for doing Science Live, and I want you to know that we are putting that together and to... Very soon, we will be able to offer this as a science class. Okay? Thank you and good night.
0: All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.